Now, every uh, preacher thinks that the book that they are going to preach on is the most important book of the 66 in the Bible. And uh, I may have said this before, but I've been wrong that Hebrews is the most important letter in the Bible. In fact, book. And here's how I know. Just a glance uh, back to Philemon. It's the page before. Look at how it begins. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear fellow worker, Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church of our house, grace to you and peace from our Lord and Father, Jesus Christ. That's a normal, conventional kind of easing of your way into a New Testament letter. Look how Hebrews begins, straight for the jugular. Long ago, and in many ways, God spoke this way, but now he has spoken finally in the person of his son. Now, if you turn to the very end of the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13, how does it end? Well, it ends normally. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with you all. That is a normal, conventional ending, but not a normal beginning. Such is the import of his message that he goes straight in for the jugular. So, there you go. From the text, it is the most urgent message in the Bible. Let's read chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father? And he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And of which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable— 
and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our prayer is that we would heed the exhortation from the writer of this letter, that we would pay much closer attention to what we hear from your final revelation in your word, lest we drift away from it. Lord, help us not to think that we cannot nor will not drift. Hold us fast to your word and to what it says, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's your application of this passage, indeed the application of the letter. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard in Scripture, to what you hear when the Word of God is preached, to what you hear when you study the Word of God, to what you hear with your ears and your heart when you read the Word of God on your own day by day. Pay much closer attention than you have lest you drift from it. It is a message to Christians. It is a message to keen Christians. It is a message to a keen church. Now, with the New Testament letters, you get a pretty good sense of what they're about from the opening section. And this letter is no exception. In the section we read from verse 1 of chapter 1 through to verse 4 of chapter 2, we get a pretty good sense of what the letter is about. And on the service sheet, you'll see that I've set that down in uh, three points. I want to highlight a pen. You want to highlight point one. That's the message in many senses of the letter. It's a strap line for Hebrews. In Jesus, God has spoken a final word concerning a finished work that guarantees a glorious future. If that beats in your heart at the end of a Bible study series on Hebrews, you've got the message of the letter. Why Hebrews writes that is another question, but that's what he says. And then chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, the supremacy of Jesus. If God in Jesus has given us a final word concerning a finished work that points us to glory and it all roots in Jesus, what you would expect the writer of the letter to do, which is what he does, is lift up the name of Jesus all of the time. And so he does here in this opening section. And so what? So what that God in Jesus has given us his final word about his finished work that points us to glory? So what? So that we might pay really close attention to what he has said, what we hear from Scripture, lest we do not drift from it. So we get in this opening section something of the rhythm of the letter as a whole. Let's take each in turn. First, in Jesus, God has spoken a final word concerning a finished work that guarantees a glorious future. That, as I said, is a strap line for the message of the letter as a whole. What is Hebrews about? What is the message of this book? I'm going to say it a few times tonight, just so you go away with it clear in your mind. In Jesus, God has spoken a final word. There's not more 
to come out from up his sleeve. It's all there. It's a finished work that points us to a glorious future. And uh, uh, we'll see all through the letter that uh, the writer develops this uh, large theme, but uh, in three strands. He talks about the final word, beginning and end of the letter especially. He talks about the finished work of Christ in the heart of the letter. And he points us to that glorious future at different points of the letter. Let's uh, just break the phrase up a bit and see what he says in these opening verses. A final word. Verse 1. Straight in. None of the usual introductory words. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken, past tense, to us by his Son. Notice first that God is a speaking God. It is good that God is a speaking God. It means that God does not hide from humanity. It means God does not want us guessing what he is like. He is a God who speaks, a God who reveals, a God who communicates. And through the ages, God has spoken in various ways. But in Jesus, God has spoken his final word. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. There is nothing more to be said. We have God's final word. Now think of it like this. If God's revelation, if what God has to say to us is like a jigsaw, the final piece in the jigsaw is Jesus and his message, the gospel. Let me run with that analogy or illustration a slightly different way. Why do we call a jigsaw puzzle a puzzle? Because until all the pieces are in place, the picture does not become clear. And so with Jesus coming, God's final word, the whole picture becomes clear. So the Old Testament becomes clear. Christ comes, it switches on a light that illuminates Scripture in the Old Testament. And we have this full and final revelation about Jesus. This complete and final word from God in the Bible, in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews makes constant use of the Old Testament to show that it speaks about Jesus. And the New Testament, formed when books like Hebrews were written, completes that picture We have the final word of God in our Bibles, Old and New Testaments. Now, how do we know that in Jesus God has spoken his final word? How do we know that there is nothing more to be said? Well, one, because of who Jesus is. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What is God like? Look at Jesus. He is the exact imprint of the nature of of God. Jesus shows us exactly what God is like. How do we know that in Jesus God has spoken his final word because of who Jesus is? Yes, but the key phrase in the text, there it is, beginning of verse 2, in these last days. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And like 
the first readers of Hebrews, we are living in the last days. All that remains is for the Lord Jesus to return. We are living in the last days. It is a waiting time. It is a long waiting time. It is a risky time that we will drift, hence the letter to the Hebrews. And God has given us in these last days his final word, his final revelation. There is nothing left to be said. Now, some implications of this fact. Well, they are profoundly challenging. Anything that counters the view that God has spoken authoritatively, and finally, in the person of Jesus, recorded for us in Scripture, Old and New Testaments, is wrong. So much of the discussion about religion and morality is completely misguided because it acts as if God never said anything at all. Anything that supersedes the Bible is wrong. Christians are wrong if they say they listen to Jesus outside of the Bible and follow Jesus in a way that is not found in the Bible. The fact that in Jesus God has spoken a final word to us recorded in Scripture is radical in its implications. I think so radical that often as Christians we may be shy away from a book like Hebrews because it says just that. We struggle with the notion of saying that people are often wrong. But it's not us who's saying it. It's God who's saying it. It's his revelation. It's his word. He has and he has the right to have the final word. A final word. The implications of that are profoundly challenging. But isn't it a wonderful thing, too, that God has spoken to us finally and so clearly and so powerfully, telling us how we can get right with God and live forever? Isn't it a wonderful thing that God has nothing up his sleeve that he's not told us about? Isn't it a wonderful thing that there are no twists in the tale, no unwritten chapters, no sequels, no secrets? God has given us his final word in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, the Bible in our hands, on our Kindles, on our phones, available at least in this part of the world, in every good bookshop. All that God has to say to humanity, you can get it in Watterson's. For 10 pounds, God's full and final revelation. It's radical in its challenge to humanity and yet wonderful, wonderful in the clarity it brings to our human condition. A final word concerning a finished work. The second half of verse 3, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The great uh, problem for humanity is the problem of sin. It is sin that separates us or alienates us from God. And that is the problem that God, from the beginning of time, purposed to fix. And the work or the act that was necessary to deal with the problem of sin fully and finally was the death of Jesus. Jesus saving Work is complete and effective. What he achieved on the cross is once and for all. That is a common phrase in Hebrews. Once and for all, there is no need anymore for a repeat sacrifice. His sacrifice is the once and for all sacrifice for sin. It is a finished work. And that finality, the fact it is a finished work, is conveyed very powerfully in the text after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Job done, sin paid for, he sat down. Now, the central chapters of Hebrews explain the implications 
of the saving work of Jesus in our lives as Christians. And when we think of the saving work of Jesus in our lives as Christians, we tend perhaps to look to the past, to the day or the period in our lives when we trusted Jesus for forgiveness. And of course, it is true that when we trusted him, we were fully forgiven. Past, present, and future sin. No condemnation. But the saving once and for all work of Jesus Christ is not restricted to the moment of our conversion. Salvation is constantly being worked out in our lives. Day by day, Jesus rescues us. Day by day, he rescues us from sin and fear and disobedience and apathy. As one writer puts it, the pioneer of our salvation brings us to the eternal glory by a saving route. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. And so we must constantly renew our trust in him day by day. Everything in our lives as Christians, our forgiveness, our transformation, our future hope, centers in that point, at that moment, Jesus died once and for all, dealing with sin and condemnation for sin. It is a finished work. Now, some implications of that, again, there are profoundly challenging implications that there is only one way of salvation and one way to be saved through Jesus' once-for-all sacrificial death, where he made purification for sins. It's striking that in the history of the church, different aspects of these foundational things in Hebrews come under pressure and under attack. The final word, no, it's not. Hebrews says, yes, it is. The once and for all atoning sacrifice for sins, the only way of salvation. No, it's not. Hebrews says, yes, it is. And in different times and in different cultures, different aspects of these principles come under attack. And Hebrews says, hold fast to them. Hold firm to them. Christianity is exclusive. But that is how God has ordained it to be. And God has spoken a final word concerning his finished work, and any contrivue is wrong. Any view that attributes salvation to someone else or something else than Christ alone is wrong. Profoundly challenging, yes, but profoundly moving and profoundly reassuring that God has provided us with the means of salvation in Jesus that in him we have the full and complete forgiveness, that the saving work of Christ is continually being worked out in our lives and will bring us to glory. If you're sitting here tonight, the Holy Spirit is transforming you. That is not in any way, not in one iota, disconnected from that once for all sacrifice of Jesus on his cross, but it's being worked out in your life day by day. Nothing else is changing you. If he had not died and was raised, you could not be changed. You could not get to glory. It is a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And as profoundly challenging and exclusive as it is, it is offered freely to all who will believe. And so, in the end of the day, the arrogance is not from God to say how we must be saved. As God, He is a prerogative to decide that. The arrogance is from those or from us who refuse to accept what he has done. 
A final word concerning a finished work that guarantees a glorious future. After making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus' death was not for him the end. He was raised to life. He ascended on high where he reigns with God. From where he will come again to bring in the new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. The glorious future that is guaranteed for believers. And again, right through the letter, the writer points us to that guaranteed glorious future to the world to come. Chapter 3, chapter 4, chapters 11, chapter 12. The implications of that glorious future, that's where the world is headed. A new creation. We are living in the last days, awaiting time. Any minute, Jesus could return. No generation will think it's their time. And yet he'll come just like that. He'll come and it'll all be done. The message of Hebrews, the message of the Bible, you've got a final revelation about a finished work that points to a glorious future where you will live for 10,000 times 10,000 years. Get that sorted out. Or live with that perspective and let that bear down on your present. And stop worrying about all that stuff that you leave behind. Invest in eternity where you will live and reign with Jesus forever as a Christian. That's where the world is headed. And to the Christian who is the guarantee of a glorious future to press on, to keep persevering, to keep going. Final word, finished work that guarantees a glorious future, and it all centers on Jesus. And what a powerful description of Jesus the writer gives us in these opening four verses. Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. There is no one like Jesus. You know, it's striking as I've, I've studied Hebrews and, and Romans. I get to kick off the series in Romans next week. Uh, that's equally important, by the way, to Hebrews. Just as hard. You know, it's, it's striking how as a preacher there are times in your life where the Word of God really gets you and unnerves you. And, and things that, that, that are challenging in the Bible really get under your skin and you think, well, am I indifferent to these things? You know, I'm a preacher. How, how much do I really pay close attention to the Word of God and, and let it deal with issues in my life? How much do I really value Jesus? Yes, as a friend. Yes, as a brother. Yes, as an intimate companion. But as a mighty king before whom, if I saw him, I could not but bow face down before him. And, and here in verses 3 to 14, the, the author lifts up the one in whom the whole thing centers and pivots, the Lord Jesus Christ. He does that in his letter in a particular way. He compares Jesus to the best of the rest. He starts by comparing him to angels. You can't get much higher than an angel, but you can, this Jesus. And then he goes for Moses, then Joshua, and then every single priest in the old covenant that's ever lived. He puts them all together and says, Jesus is higher, better, superior. Here it's the angels. 
Verse 3, Jesus, verse 4 rather, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. His name is the Son. Their name means messenger. Now, we don't think of angels a great deal, except perhaps possibly at Christmas. Let me um, just remind you that angels are real. They speak. They're powerful. They're scary. You know they're scary because they always say, fear not when they appear. They're described here in Hebrews, verses 4 and 14, as ministers. In the book of Acts, we see them at work. They release prisoners. They instruct preachers. They encourage believers. They judge blasphemers. They help people on journeys. So wouldn't it be great to have an angel? Wouldn't it be great to have an angel at our side to guide us through life, wouldn't it be great to have a personal angel? Yes, yes, yes. And if an angel comes along, although you wouldn't know he or she were an angel, because they wouldn't look like an angel, I guess. But if an angel comes along, then thank God for that angel. And sometimes they will. But the righteous point is this. Aren't angels great? And we're all meant to nod and say, angels are great. I wish I had an angel. But then the writer says this, Jesus is just way better than the best of the angels. He is far superior, far greater than the greatest angel. It is Jesus you need and you can have him. You can have his message, his word, his revelation, his gospel in the Bible as your guide. That is better than an angel at your side day by day in your life. Now, uh, the writer um, conveys Jesus' superiority to the angels in quite a complex and intricate way. He weaves all sorts of quotations from the Old Testament into what he says in verses 4 through 14. And many of these Old Testament uh, quotations are used elsewhere in the New Testament. And his point is to make his point that Jesus is way better than the angels, but to do so in a way that ties every possible thread, Old and New Testament, together in Jesus Christ. That's his method. He says, for example, Jesus is superior to the angels because as the Son, he alone, verse 5, is God's anointed King. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. If you know your Old Testament well, you'll know it's Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 7. The great psalm of the majesty of the king, Psalm 2, and the anointing verses from one from 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles 7, about a king that would come after David's line. They are fulfilled in Jesus. No angel gets near. Second, Jesus is superior to the angels because they are to worship him as God's everlasting ruler. Verses 6 to 12. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Lord, let all angels worship him. He is the one that the highest celestial beings worship. He is worth their worship. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds, verse 7, and his ministers a flame of fire. They're messengers, they're agents for God. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, my Son, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. They are to worship the everlasting 
Son. Verses 10 to 12 speak of Jesus, quoting from Psalm 102. And what a great person Jesus is, what power he has. He is someone who can connect us to eternity itself. He is Savior. He is King. He connects us to eternity. And he is superior, thirdly and finally, to the angels, because as the Son, verse 13, he is the final victor and judge. That is a slightly harder edge to it. We can assent to the fact that Jesus is God's King, our Savior. We can assent to the fact that Jesus connects us to eternity. But Jesus, as a final victor and judge, well, that is a tougher edge. I listened uh, to a sermon on this this week, and the preacher said there are two things that are certain in life. Um, death and taxes, or taxes and death. And he said, let me give you another two that are certain, death and resurrection to face Jesus, who will be our judge for the rest of eternity. That's the truth. He will judge us all. Jesus is awesome. That is the writer's point. Angels are spirits. He is God. Angels are servants. He is Savior. Angels give worship. He receives it. There is a fundamental difference and contrast between Jesus and anyone or anything else. But He is for us. He is the one who makes us right with God. He is the one through whom we fear nothing, not even death. He is the one who gives life meaning. And if that sounds narrow... I could spin this in a different way. Let me just say it for what it is. If that sounds narrow, it is because it is narrow. It is narrow. It is narrow. But until someone shows me a man who lived and taught the way Jesus did and performed the astonishing miracles that he performed and fulfilled all of the Old Testament in his life, and laid down his life to forgive my sins, and was raised to life before the eyes of many witnesses, and ascended to God and reigns. Until somebody shows me a man who is anything like that, I'll go on, and many of you will go on trusting and following that man with all your heart and with all your life. It is narrow, but crystal clear in that the God of heaven has given us in Jesus the means by which we can be safe. So in Jesus, God has spoken a final word concerning a finished work that guarantees a glorious future. In Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the anointed king, the everlasting ruler, the judge and the victor merits the worship of angels and our worship too. And we close with these four verses at the beginning of chapter 2. The application, in effect, of what the writer has said to this point. Indeed, the application of the letter as a whole. Chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. The letter to the Hebrews was written to Christians who had begun to drift, to drift from their secure bearings. 
the secure bearings of God's final word concerning a finished work that guarantees a glorious future. They had begun to drift from these fixed bearings. Maybe the Bible is not God's word, at least not his final word. At least not everything he said in it is true anymore. At least it might flex a bit in our culture in the 21st century. Or maybe the heart of the gospel, the once and for all sacrificial death of Jesus, maybe it is not quite the heart of the gospel after all. And the guaranteed glorious future, simply, surely there is something more to Christian life now, more to experience an easier life. And what causes Christians to drift? Hebrews addresses them all. Sin, hardness of heart, worldliness, opposition, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Being a Christian for a lot of years, familiarity, weariness. The message of Hebrews is that we all should persevere. That in Jesus, God has given us his final word. There is nothing more to be said. He's finished the work that he had to do. There is nothing more to be done. And he will come again. And there will be a glorious eternity. So, the language of the letter runs. Chapter 3, verse 6. Hold fast. When do you need to hold fast to a life belt when the sea is trying to drag you away from holding fast to it? Chapter 4, verses 11 and 14, let us therefore strive. When do you need to strive? When you need effort to keep going. Chapter 4, verse 14, hold fast. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 18, go on to maturity. There's a great New Year's resolution if it's not already too late. Strive for Christian maturity. Chapter 12, lay aside every weight and sin. Run with endurance. And then, very movingly, towards the end of the letter, the language of Hebrews was very appealing, very warm. And you get these wonderful passages about how the Lord Jesus in his full humanity empathizes with our human weakness. I know, he says, how hard it is for you. Therefore, Chapter 2 and verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Dick Lucas, when he was preaching on this passage, had the audacity to say, and I can only say it because he had the audacity to say it, he said to the congregation he was preaching to at the time, how many of you have drifted away in the last 25 minutes? How many of you have drifted away from listening to the voice of God for your eternal salvation? Notice what he says. Very striking, isn't it? 
He says, pay attention. No. He says, pay closer attention. No. He says, pay much closer attention. Then he says, we must pay much closer attention, lest we drift away from it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you for this very strong and yet very true and helpful encouragement for us. With all of the urgency at the beginning of this letter, when he launches straight in to arrest us with its message, that in Jesus Christ, you have spoken a final word recorded for us in Scripture, Old and New Testaments together, about a finished work, Christ's once and for all sacrifice for sin. It points us to a glorious future. It all pivots around this man, the Lord Jesus, and there is no one higher than him. Lord, help us as we study the book of Hebrews to have a biblical view of Jesus. Yes, as a friend and as a brother, but as a king that is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, where he reigns and rules. And Lord, may we all tonight heed these strong words at the beginning of chapter 2. Pay much closer attention to what your word says, to what we hear, to what we study, lest we drift from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.